Flip the Switch, your podcast for the latest on power, people and the planet. Hello everyone. Welcome to the third episode of Flip the Switch. This is a podcast series where we exchange ideas, knowledge and solutions that affect our progress in achieving universal access to clean and reliable energy. I am Vishali Mishra, your host for this episode. Our first two episodes highlighted key issues of access, carbon and jobs, with the first one with Ashwin Dayal and Joseph Nanga of the Global Energy Alliance for People and Planet, GAP, talking about a green pathway for development. The second episode with Caroline Ibamba from GAP and Padmashree Reema Nanavati from SEVA, talking about the role of women in energy. Today, we will deliberate on another important link in the energy access value chain, the youth. Our guest today is an eminent climate activist and political scientist, an alumni from the Columbia University. She recently attended COP26 as the only student in the Columbia University COP26 delegation joining a roundtable with President Barack Obama. She also features in a children's book called Everyday Superheroes, Women in Energy Careers. Please join me in welcoming Eduarda Zogbi, Director, Women in Energy Brazil, Colombia Global Center, Rio. A very, very warm welcome to you, Eduarda. Thank you so much for this opportunity, Vaishali. I'm very happy to be here with you. Uh, I'm going to straight away launch into the first question. Why is it important to address the impact of climate change on the young generation? Well, I think it's extremely important because when we're talking about climate change, we're talking about long-term impacts in uh, in young people who today are very likely to face the most extreme effects of, you know, a global warming scenario. So according to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, by 2040, we're very likely to already reach the 1.5 degrees Celsius in warming. And I believe that my generation is going to be the one who will have to, you know, be very well equipped to come up with solutions to address the challenges that are coming with this scenario. And we all know it's not good in the sense that all the conflicts that we see today for natural resources are going to be exacerbated. So it's important to have young people joining this process because we have to understand how, you know, to shape better policies, how to think of uh, technology deployment, how to reach uh, rural communities and the people who are the most vulnerable. So when we think of addressing the, the impact on young people, we also have to remind ourselves that uh, uh, nowadays a good amount, uh, a good percentage of the global population is actually comprised of youth. And especially as we see the energy sector being uh, the most important sector for decarbonization in the future, um, when we talk about the gap that we have today of you know two-thirds of the global population not having proper access to electricity. We were talking about, you know, the continents of Africa and Asia, where Africa, the population under 35, represents almost a billion people, accounting to uh, to 23% of the world's total youth population. And Asia has 58% of the world's youth. So when we're thinking of these solutions, we have to start uh, 
asking ourselves, how can we integrate young people in all continents to be part of the solutions? How can they be the ones leading, uh, you know, leading a decarbonized society with the experience that they gain on the ground and receiving proper support, finance, and even mentorship from leaders that are today thinking of ways of engaging young people in this process. Right. Um, yeah, the, this this kind of brings me to, uh, into the second question, Eduardo. If you were to say what would be the role of youth in climate interventions, if you can maybe just spell out how young people um, are not only just, you know, the recipients or, or are part of the impact, but could also be, as you said, part of the solution, uh, as they say, be the change that you want to see. Uh, what, according to you, is the role of youth in climate interventions? I think... When we discuss uh, green jobs, I think the future of the jobs, uh, the future of work will be a lot in the hands of young people. So we're talking about jobs that currently don't even exist. There are a lot of technologies being conceived nowadays and young people who are, you know, have just started college. They are already thinking, you know, how can I be working with someone that will positively impact the planet? So I think that green jobs is one big issue um, that, you know, integrates young people in, in the transition that we want. But I also think in the, in the ground level and also in networks, for instance, nowadays with, uh, with Internet access and, and also most young people having access to cell phones, being part of networks such as Student Energy or the SDG7 Youth Constituency, or I'm even involved in the BRICS Youth Energy Agency. Those are networks of young people all over the world who are committed to the energy transition, who are working together, uh, you know, from the bottom up, talking to local governments, uh, reviewing policy documents, and even doing consultations of what young people want to see in the transition. And another way of really uh, making youth be part of this process is creating ways for young people to participate in high level meetings. So one one thing that I will say about my personal experience is that I've been a climate activist since I was 12. Um, and this was in the early 2000s. Um, back then, it would be, you know, inconceivable to even see myself going to a COP. And nowadays, you see the amount of young representatives at cops uh, and being very active, speaking in panels, and you see how well and how, you know, outspoken they already can be because they have the knowledge that doesn't require 20, 30 years of experience in the sector, but they're leaving it in their own communities. I think there has been a massive change in that sense. And now more countries are starting to, you know, bring young people as part of their country delegations so that they're involved uh, in the actual negotiation process and not just, you know, just being there to watch the event, but they're actually involving more and more young people and having them work with climate issues, um, you know, at the, at the country level. And I think this is crucial because if we want, as I said in the beginning, if we're thinking about a future with more and more challenges, conflicts, uh, and, you know, lack of access to natural resources, we have, we need the young people to learn at an early stage in their careers, how to discuss uh, how to discuss these challenges in a multicultural environment, how to properly negotiate, and how to represent the interests of their countries in a global uh, convening. 
Right. I mean, I, I just out of my personal experience, uh, we had GAP and, and, uh, IKEA Foundation as part of GAP film a series on how, um, children, you know, between the age group of about say eight to 12. So this is not really youth, but, um, children look at how they look at climate, uh, change and, and, you know, how do they perceive their environment changing? Simple things like not being able to go out and play in the park. I mean, it was amazing how well they articulated it and really simply, but beautifully. So, um, yeah, I, I think there is also a huge emphasis on young children. I mean, right, as you said, I mean, you did that at the age of 12. I'm seeing kids at, uh, you know, even um, at the age of eight talk about um, the impact of climate change. So it's really heartening to know that this movement is gaining um, momentum. Uh, the other, you know, big chunk of this entire value chain is women. Um, you were also selected for the Atlantic uh, Council's Women Leaders in Energy Fellowship recently, and you're also leading the expansion of uh, the Columbia University's Women in Energy program to Brazil. Do you think enough emphasis is being given on involving young women in this conversation? Definitely not. <laughs> uh, I think that, uh, I mean, you and I will probably know how this is because we know how it's hard to uh, be represented in these events. And even if we are, usually who, the people who are making the decisions are our men. And I think that we see this being an issue, not just, you know, in terms of integrating women and having women participate in the process, but I think in terms of decision making, um, for example, I think public lighting is such an important factor in protecting women in their daily lives that is related to energy access. And when you think about who are the urban planners, the architects, the engineers that are thinking, where are we going to you know, place public lighting in a city? Tr truly, <laughs> the amount of women who are in that table making decisions is very minimal. And this goes to everything in the energy sector, to all infrastructure decisions all over the supply chain uh, from, you know, how are we how are we uh, uh, distributing energy in a, in, a, in a city or in a country or how are we prioritizing policies? We are we don't have a gender lens in policymaking at all in most countries. And this to say, when you look even at the composition of, uh, of parliaments all over the world, Women are, are barely present. And I say this in Brazil, I think we, we rank 153 out of 180 countries in the world in terms of female participation in Congress. And the, this goes to say to our own Ministry of Mines and Energy, we have less than 12% of women who are part of, uh, you know, who are in decision-making positions. And if you look at the minister, the secretariats, the deputy minister, all the higher positions, they're all occupied by men. So these are the people that are usually traveling abroad and speaking on our behalf. And they're rarely ever consulting with women. And this is not a problem with my country. This is a problem with all countries. And that's why, and maybe tying up to the point you made before about environmental education, which I think is critical to involving young people and, you know, and also, you know, finding a way for all of us to be more engaged in this process is the fact that we have to impact women in a very, very early stage, not just at home, you know, our responsibilities as future parents, but also uh, empowering them, knowing that they can be in STEM careers, that they can do whatever they want with their careers. And I think 
energy organizations and companies have to start tackling this issue uh, in schools, in high schools, in college, and offer opportunities for young women so that they know that this is even an option in their careers. I, through the Women in Energy program in Brazil, we've been talking a lot with, uh, with women who are currently in undergrad And some of the challenges that they that they face is the fact that there aren't a lot of work opportunities in their cities or they don't even know which companies are out there hiring. And I think it's very interesting because these these companies are not going to 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 college. They're not, you know, trying to um, also in the positions that they advertise, they're not looking for skills or they're not advertising in a way that. Um, that makes women become interested in their companies or in, you know, in, in both Portuguese and Spanish, we have female and male words for, uh, for, for example, an engineer. So normally these jobs are advertised for a male engineer just with the word that they're using. And I think, again, bringing this gender lens is very important if we want women to uh, occupy a bigger space in the energy industry. But another point that I would love to make is I think that I, I like to see gender and energy in two different ways. One is the participation of women in the workforce and especially in decision-making positions, but also acknowledging the role of women as energy consumers, which is different than men's resp uh, responsibilities. We know this because we, we live in a patriarchal society, which women are mostly responsible for domestic uh, duties in their homes. And this makes women most of the time responsible for utilizing energy during the day and fetching fuels, uh, especially in, in you know, India's case, when we talk about clean cooking, it's such an important matter that is also still lacking a lot of finance and support. But a lot of the time that they could be dedicating themselves to income generating activities and even children that are part of this process of fetching fuels and And that could be actually in schools. And sometimes they can't even dedicate themselves to their studies because they don't have electricity at night to study. So I think that bringing more women is vital. And for everyone that is listening, for especially for, for donors or government representatives, I think it's so important to also create ways for these girls to be part of the process with scholarships, uh, sponsoring Uh, girls to join energy events or even thinking of quotas once they're already established in an organization, acknowledging their skills, paying them fairly, <laughs> compensating them fairly for their work, and uh, and really considering who are the members of, of the board of this organization. Are they bringing more women? And I think this is going to play a, an even more important role in the future as we as the discussions of ESG continue to grow. Right. Thank you um, so much, Eduardo, for kind of, you know, uh, bringing attention to policymakers and, and to stakeholders who would be listening to this podcast to this very important point about engaging women at all levels in the value chain. So not just as, uh, you know, part of the supply um, part of it and, and getting jobs or getting access to green jobs, but also as not just as passive consumers of uh, energy. Uh, now that you've mentioned about you know, democratizing energy access for all stakeholders. There is a lot of narrative around SDG 7, around COP26 and now COP27, which will happen uh, soon enough in November. 
Eduardo, do you somewhere feel that we talk only big, whereas it does not percolate down uh, to where it should be at at a grassroots level? Are we still very much on the surface or do you see examples of um, the narrative really impacting people uh, where it you know matters the most? You mean in terms of uh, energy access really reaching the, the last mile? Uh, I do believe so. And I say this because uh, going back to you know, uh, what we were talking about, technology and dissemination, distribution, I feel like... Uh, the fact that now we're able to take uh, off-grid electrification to another level because of the decrease in cost of batteries is potentially one of the main reasons why we are enabling access. I think that if it wasn't for the COVID-19 pandemic, we would have seen a lot more progress, but I think everything changed in the last few years. But before that, I think, uh, you know, I think all stakeholders and all the organizations working in this space have done a terrific job in thinking of how we could, you know, reach these communities with new business models. I think pay as you go is something that I uh, that has been very successful in African countries. And I, and I always, whenever I'm talking to Brazilian uh, stakeholders, I mention how how much we need South South cooperation because a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of new ways of uh, reaching rural communities are coming up in other countries, and we always look at what the you know global north is doing we always try you know to think how can we uh, bring electric vehicles to our country which is which is great and should be also in the pipeline but we forget about you know the most basic necessities of communities that are struggling even to survive and nowadays you know affordability has also been a huge issue because of the energy crisis that we're dealing with so I think that um, not just thinking of the technology and what we have achieved because of the decrease in costs is also looking at affordability and how to shape demand and look into you know energy tariffs, how what models are working and what models are not working, and the countries, especially with my experiences, most mostly being in Latin America and Africa, seeing that countries that have really uh, uh, led this this movement for solar energy they have looked at their own legislation and they have removed certain you know duties and tariffs that were that could enable the technology to arrive in these countries at a low cost for communities i think that also uh, uh, a lot of organizations were also very important in thinking how to support and to ensure finance small you know finance um, for for these communities to have access to electricity i think I, I am an optimist. I think that it's we have reached a lot of progress. What I think we're still lagging behind is in clean cooking. I think clean cooking is is, and I say this as a recent recent graduate from you know Columbia University. Uh, my focus was energy policy. I took a lot of classes uh, looking into you know technology, finance, policy. And we never, ever discussed clean cooking. <laughs> it doesn't come up. It's not, I don't know if it's because most of my professors are, you know, coming from European and European countries and from the U.S. itself. But I think that that's why it's so important to have educators that have also knowledge on the ground that have traveled and that are also looking into this, this gender lens that we, we need also to think of new business models, not just for electricity access, but also for clean cooking. 
and looking into policy on how we reduce the costs or um, or create subsidies in this specific area because again um, there are more than two billion people lacking um, access to clean cooking and most of these people are women so when we talk about a just energy transition we really have to prioritize certain topics that have been left behind. I agree. I mean, you'd be surprised. It's not just the European or the West, uh, you know, not talking about this, but even in a country like India, where, uh, you know, 70% of the rural Indian and women engaged in domestic chores still don't have access to um, clean uh, fuel for, for their cooking needs and spend, um, you know, pretty much uh, most part of the day cooking for their family. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's amazing how you also see these in, in countries like India. Uh, Eduardo, final question. What, according to you, would a constructive, a climate empathetic workforce look like um, to you in, in the future? That's a great question. I think that I would love to highlight a study that Student Energy does uh, every year, which is called the Global Youth Energy Outlook, in which they interview young people all over the world, asking them that question and asking them how can we, you know, uh, what, what are the main priorities for young people in terms of the energy transition or how, how, do, how can young people be helped and supported and one of the recommendations is investing in upskilling and transition skill uh, skills programs to sustain youth um, and also developing targeted financial programs that prioritize youth initiatives. So in terms of being involving young people and supporting the work that they're doing, I think that, um, you know, small grants can make the difference between transforming an idea into action. And um, and I think when we when we speak about supporting uh, uh, on-the-ground activities or supporting young people who are already doing this type of work. I think training and uh, technical assistance are very important. And specifically talking about entrepreneurs, even female entrepreneurs, sometimes they have a great idea, an idea that they even receive seed, seed funding to develop but they lack certain skills related to, you know, to accounting, to negotiating, to, uh, to managing a company, because it's, it's not easy. Maybe they have a, a, a background in engineering or economics, but they don't know everything. And they're still very young, having to be entrepreneurs and, and be studying half of the time, sometimes even taking care of a family. So I think that technical assistance is very, very important. And also thinking of, you know, what, what type of skills do young people need? They also need mentors, uh, mentors that have undergone the same type of challenges in the industry and mentors that will be able to provide them with opportunities and connections that are so important. Um, but overall, I think that uh, awareness is very important. So even how do you bridge young people to local governments how do you make them more interested and more optimistic? Because, you know, we're young people are not only climate anxious at the moment, but they're also losing hope in their governments. So I think that governments have also a huge responsibility in, uh, in bringing in more young people to work for them and 
maybe retrieving this type of hope that we need at the moment when we have an imminent climate crisis and we all know how much it's going to affect us. Right. Thank you. Thank you so much, Eduardo, for um, highlighting how young people and, and women in particular can really play an important role in this entire conversation. It was a pleasure talking to you. And uh, yeah, I, I think I share your optimism um, and, and hope that the future will be in safe hands. Uh, thank you, listeners, for joining in. Till the next episode of Flip the Switch, stay safe and stay well. Thank you so much, Vaishali. This was great. Flip the Switch, your podcast for the latest on power, people and the planet.